1 Peter 5, 5-10. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of grace, of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. This is, the, this is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are thankful for that promise at the end of 1 Peter 5, that the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Um, that after we have suffered for a little while in this life, uh, you yourself will save us. Uh, you won't send an angel, uh, you won't send a letter, you won't uh, snap your fingers or do something from a distance. Uh, you yourself will come in Christ and restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. Um, Father, will you help us hold on until that point? Hold on to faith, hold on to one another, um, hold forth you. Uh, to uh, shout uh, about your glory and your salvation, your death and resurrection, um, so that other people might uh, hope with us and uh, be together with us. Um, I pray for this morning uh, that we would be encouraged by your word, uh, by the apostles' words uh, to a struggling church, um, would we, as we listen in uh, to what he says, would we also be encouraged? In Jesus' name, amen. So last year, we worked through Romans 8 uh, for a couple months, uh, which is written in a similar context to 1 Peter. Uh, the church uh, there, as well as here, uh, so in Rome, as well as in Turkey, essentially, um, is, was being persecuted for their faith. And so they were suffering abuse relationally, economically, socially, physically even. And Paul makes this radical claim to a suffering church based on the gospel in Romans 8.18. He says that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Um, and not only that, Paul says, and we know in Romans 8, 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So not only is our present suffering not worth comparing, um, even that suffering is going to be transformed, uh, transmorphed into glory. It's going to be, be changed into good. And uh, Peter really offers similar assurances in today's text. Uh, while he acknowledges that uh, their present circumstances are hard, he says in chapter 5, verse 10, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. 
And so confident is he of this future that he immediately uh, ends with praise. To him be the dominion forever and ever, amen. He's so confident that already he is praising God for this future salvation. Now, in Romans 8, Paul encourages the church um, in their suffering by focusing on God's sovereignty over time. Uh, He calls Christians to pick their heads up from their current struggle, uh, to look to eternity, to eternity past and eternity future. He reminds them that God stands over all of it, and so they can be sure that God will save them and make all things right. And in December, in thinking about this, I use the analogy of a basketball. Um, If you just see a picture of a basketball frozen in time and space, you can't know where it's going. Um, Is it falling? Is it rising? Is it floating? Which direction is it going? And in the same way, when we look at our own circumstances, um, how do you know it's going to, uh, it's not going to always be this way? How, how do you know it's not going to get worse, right? We, we can't just look at our present circumstances. We have to zoom out a bit. Um, and so we do zoom out by considering the future. But even if I add a hopeful future off in the distance, so there's a basket, a goal, an end, um, that's nice, but I still don't really know if that's where the ball's headed just from this shot, right? Maybe the ball's headed in the opposite direction. Uh, Maybe it falls short and never makes it. Maybe I fall short and never make it. You can't know an object's future without knowing its trajectory, without knowing something of its beginning and its motion. Um, That's the only way we can sort of confidently predict that it's going. It's always, uh, wow, we just uh, finished the... NBA Finals, and to watch Steph Curry shoot a three, turn around, and it goes in without him even looking at it. It's wild. Um, but um, how, he knows where it starts, right? He knows the trajectory. He, he can already predict that it's going in. Um, and so you, we also, and we, when we think about our own trajectory, we need to know where it started. Uh, where did we start? Um, and so you have a player. What gives us our forward momentum? How do I know that my present sufferings are aimed at future glory and will ultimately make it? But even this picture is not enough to guarantee the future of that basketball um, because we don't know who the player is. Is that Steph Curry um, or is it me? If it's me, it's not going in. (laughs) And uh, I'm terrible at basketball. And so I'm also terrible at loving God as I ought to love him. And so if the only... Uh, length that I zoom back, if, if my behavior is as far back as I'm allowed to go for confidence in myself, um, I'm lost. Um, if my eternal good is relying solely on my ability to love God with all my life, I have little hope. And so what do we do with this difficulty? And so theologians have wrestled with this uh, uh, for thousands of years And some people will answer this conundrum by making God the player and me the basketball. Um, But that doesn't feel right to our experience, right? I don't feel like a basketball um, when I think about my life and an inanimate object with no agency. Um, I feel like a player, like I'm involved in the work of life. Uh, God made me to be a player, and he did. You are active in your salvation, and so am I. Um, You are not just a basketball being thrown around. The thing is, though, God is also more than a basketball player. Uh, He is just as offended by this slide as you are, uh, more so, actually, Um, because God's not just a guy on your team. 
right? He's not just helping you out. He's not your coach. He's not, he's not rooting for you in the stands. He is God, meaning he is outside of the game entirely. He is not to be compared to me. He is the Lord and sustainer of all that's within the game, timelessly eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, everywhere present, unchangeable, impassable, so that his sovereignty is not just over you, the basketball player, it's over the ball, the air, the court, it's over the goal. His control is exhaustive, but it's exhaustive in such a way that you still remain you. You still... um, are decisive um, in your salvation. Your decision to love God is still your decision, but it's his too, because nothing ever falls outside of his decision. You are playing because he has decided you can play. But because of sin, you are playing poorly. I play poorly. And so in God's kindness, what does he do? Even though he's outside of time, in the incarnation, he sends his son, the eternal son, into time in the person of Jesus. And so Jesus comes as a human, a player, to play on our behalf in our place. He played perfectly. His win is our win, but then he dies in our place according to the scriptures, that we might be justified, that we might be forgiven, made righteous, and having been justified, raised a new life. And then at that point, by sending the Spirit, which we celebrate in Pentecost, God doesn't just sub Jesus in for us where, again, we're not important. We're on the sidelines, right? He makes us like him. He fills us with him um, so that we might play as well as he does. So now, having uh, thoroughly uh, beaten that uh, analogy into the ground, um, 1 Peter really supports this picture, but it expands it. Um, And so God is involved in our salvation entirely, Um, He has encouraged the church in suffering, Peter does, to zoom out and remember their future. That's how how Peter begins the book. 1 Peter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And so in the present, in our whatever circumstances we're facing, our minds should be set simultaneously on the past and the future. We need to hold that together. That is faith. Confidence in a future salvation because of God's work in the past. That's what the Christian faith involves. And in this passage, Peter asks us to hold that as we suffer, as we um, live and move about in the world. But in this passage, Peter asks us to do more than just zoom out time-wise. Peter also wants us to zoom out in space and consider the other characters, the other athletes playing in the game. Who else is involved? Um, It's more than just us by ourselves. There are two types of people in particular to remember uh, from 1 Peter, and that is Satan and the global church. Those are the two things that he wants us to hold together. And so we're just gonna work through that and and think to ourselves, man, how often do these people enter my mind as I think about my life? So first Satan, first Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. It's important for the church, for our church, for us, to remember that we have an adversary 
and to let that affect our behavior. Our difficulties and challenges are not simply the result of physical, material, relational, social, political, historical reasons. There is a spiritual being, a fallen angel who leads many fallen angels, right, who is actively plotting against the church. Even now, following the victory of Christ in the cross and resurrection, especially now, uh, he is more active now following the gospel than he was before. Um, I'm reminded of the story in the book of Revelation, which tells a parable and and it describes Satan, um, his bitterness towards the church. Uh, Revelation 12, verses nine through 12. It says, and the great dragon was thrown down. So at the ascension of Christ, when Christ ascends to heaven and takes um, seat at the throne, it says, the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. So there's victory here. They have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. And so there is an intensity, a greater intensity to the work of Satan following his defeat. Um, He knows that his time is short. And this is a frightening reality, and it's also one that we don't talk about very often. Uh, There was a book written in the 90s by Andrew Delvanco called The Death of Satan, How Americans Have Lost the Sense of Evil. And I actually don't think that he is a Christian, um, but he still believes that it's important for society to retain a concept of evil, and that when we lose the idea of evil, we struggle to explain so many things. Um, We have to hold on to it um, as a motivator for our life. And Peter agrees uh, that it is important that we retain an idea of evil, the concept of evil in its presence. It is important. Uh, Back to the basketball analogy, you're gonna have to, you're gonna play a game differently if you know you have an opponent, Um, especially if you know your opponent is a cheater, um, is a liar, is a murderer you're going to move about the world differently. And so I just put this question to you, how often do you remember evil? How often do you remember that you have an adversary in the devil? He remembers us always, always. And so we must remember him and behave accordingly. Now, it is important that we don't think too often of Satan. I think it's instructive to us that in a book about suffering, he doesn't just lead, he doesn't lead with this. He doesn't dwell on Satan at length, right? He, he talks about all kinds of other things. Um, and then only in, only in this final reminder, um, we're sort of given this uh, yeah, impulse to, to remember. And the fact is that Satan remains a mysterious creature. Uh, T. Desmond Alexander, we catch but occasional glimpses of this shadowy opponent. Uh, This should not surprise us. As divine revelation, the Bible exists to give us a deeper understanding of God, 
It is not designed to promote knowledge of the enemy beyond what is necessary for comprehending the world in which we live and our own experience of it. Consequently, many questions remain unanswered when we collate what the Bible says about the devil or Satan. Um, I read elsewhere that because Satan's desire is to steal glory, um, that it makes sense that the Bible will not uh, talk much of him. Uh, it'll only say the bare minimum because if we, if we over talk about him, then it's sort of glorifying him in a way that's not appropriate. So we actually are uh, uh, hurting him when we, when we ignore him to a degree and we focus on the glory of the Lord. And so Peter doesn't uh, go into a bunch of seedy details about Satan. He doesn't answer deep questions. And that's partly because we're never asked to really go head to head with Satan. So we don't need to do a lot of study of him. We don't need to know his tactics. Um, that's not what humans do with prowling lions, right? We don't sort of study and prepare ourselves to go hand to hand with a lion, right? In a fight with a lion, you are not going to win. We, we are aware of lions because we want to avoid them. Uh, we don't want to be in a fight with them. There's a ridiculous new movie called Beast. You've seen this, it looks terrible. Um, and it's basically this it's Idris Elba. Or how do you say his name? I... Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. He's protecting his family from a lion, and uh, it's terrible. It looks bad. Um, so, uh, in a fight with a lion, like you're not going to win. And uh, so, there's not a great deal of benefit to studying Satan deeply. Um, you can if you want, um, but as a warning, um, your most reliable resources aren't really going to tell you that many details about them. They're really just going to disabuse you of stereotypes and uh, superstition. Um, I'm happy to recommend some books and authors, but clearly Peter doesn't think it's all that important that we know a lot of details. Just remember that he's there. Remember that he's present. Remember that he um, is prowling about seeking someone to devour. He simply wants you to remember he exists and to let his existence affect your behavior. And what is his counsel? How should our behavior be affected? First Peter 5.8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Don't forget about him. Don't be lazy. Remain alert. And in verse 9, resist him, firm in your faith. And so while the Bible nowhere advises Christians to confront Satan directly, uh, we are told to resist him through faith through a strong faith. And that's because how does Satan attack us? Um, how does he uh, seek to devour us? He usually does it by leveling accusations against God and us, right? Against, he slanders God. He causes us to question God's love for us, his grace, our worth in Christ, and faith holds fast in the face of such attacks. Um, in an almost parallel passage, James 4 says, therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hearts, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And so as you think about your life, as you think about the struggles that you're going through presently, how often do you remember Satan's presence? Do you sense him? Do you remember that he is sort of on the edges of your life seeking someone to devour? He's not all-powerful. He's not omniscient or omnipotent or omnipresent. 
and yet he is present. He is active. And that should humble us. It should motivate our faith. It should motivate our holiness. It should cause us to draw near to God who does directly attack Satan. We can't do it, but God can do it and does so that we might not be the someone that he devours. Are you, a, are you on alert? Not obsessed, not frightened, but sobered. The other characters Peter wants us to remember, the other athletes, is the global church. So 1 Peter 5, 8 through 9, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And so again, in suffering, we tend to get tunnel vision, and we just only see our present circumstances. And so we need to zoom out to get a fuller picture of what's going on in our lives. We zoom out time-wise, we remember God's promise made in eternity past for our eternal future. We zoom out space-wise and include not just material reality, but the spiritual reality at work, including the devil. And then we also need to include the global church as we think about our own lives, as we think about enduring. Remember our brothers and sisters throughout the world who are enduring the same kinds of suffering. Our fight with the devil is not 1v1, right? It's not us alone. We are never alone. The body of Christ is tremendous. I mean, just think, right now, throughout the world, there are millions of people full of the Spirit, worshiping God in power and truth. Like, let that settle onto your heart to recognize that we are not alone. We are never alone. It reminds me of God's encouragement to Elijah in 1 Kings 19, um, when he was on the run from Jezebel and he thought he was the only one. He says it repeatedly. I'm the only one left. And God tells him that there were 7,000 left who had not bowed the knee to Baal. You are not the only one. You are not alone. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced around the world. Our faith is strengthened when we remember the experience of Christians. When you face difficulty, doubts, or tempted by despair, one of the best things you can do is seek out stories from others. Stories from brothers and sisters near and far, but especially far. And that highlights a great advantage we have over the early church, right? We have direct access to these stories, right? There are Christian biographies that we can read, documentaries, journals, organizations. We can talk on the phone with these people, right? We can travel to see them when we fly around the world. We can sit in churches in languages that we can't understand, but know that they love Jesus too. Maggie and I went to a pastor's retreat in May, and it was so encouraging to hear about the very similar challenges faced by churches across the country, uh, post-COVID, post-Trump, post-crazy, right? Um, and you kind of feel bad being encouraged that they're also struggling too. <laughs> um, sort of uh, like uh, 
you kind of want them to be struggling um, and not be the only one. Um, but the reality is that encouragement from sympathy is very real and it's very biblical, right? To know that other people are facing the same kind of struggles. My faith is strengthened when I learn that other Christians are facing similar kinds of struggles around the world. I'm not the only one, I'm not alone. And sometimes, like in the case of Elijah, those thoughts of being alone, of being the only one, is actually an expression of pride. There is a rebuke to Elijah. There is a rebuke to us when I think that my uh, problems are unique and special. And so God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And one of the ways we pursue humility is by seeking out the stories of others, remembering that we're not unique, our circumstances are not unique. And so how often do you think of Satan? How often do you think about Christians in other places? How often do you seek out their stories for encouragement and edification? Do you call old Christian friends, right, who are living in other cities? Do you read missionary newsletters, right? Or do they remain unread in your inbox, right, where you just sort of pass over them? Or do you read them and pray through them? Does the wider church play any part in our information diet? Or is it all politics, all culture, all tech, all finance? Those are the things we read about. Those stories are the least important things happening in the world. The least important. They are a flash in the pan of eternity, a curiosity. The most important things happening in the world today involve the humble, faithful witness of Christians quietly around the world. Brothers and sisters loving each other, serving their communities, remaining firm in their faith, telling people about Jesus. Suffering in similar ways to you and to me and to us. In our world, especially one that's so obsessed with politics and culture, um, which is really a way to be obsessed with power. That's what we are. We're, we're obsessed with powerful people. It is so good for our soul to remember weak Christians with eternal influence, to remember the church. And so I encourage you, develop interests, rhythms, habits of remembrance. Subscribe to good magazines that tell these kinds of stories, like Christianity Today or Plow Quarterly or something like that. Read Christian biographies. Maggie's a big fan of them, and so she's got all kinds of recommendations. Um, subscribe to newsletters of missionaries. That's the easiest thing you could do. Um, and it will so encourage those missionaries, and those church planners in other places, um, and it will encourage you to. If you read them, subscribe to them, that means you have to read them and pray through them. Pray for what they ask prayer for. Uh, maybe you already have Christian news sources you follow, um, various blogs and things like that, but if you're like me, I tend to skip past stories that aren't about politics and culture, and so I just sort of ignore the stories that are about small places in the world. And so why not prioritize those stories and, and seek them out, read them, um, even if it's not a hot topic? Be intentional about identifying with their struggles and let your unity in Christ encourage you. You are not the only one 
We are not the only one. You are not alone, we are not alone. Uh, San Francisco is not special. And San Franciscan churches are not special. The same kinds of difficulties and challenges are being faced around the world. That should encourage us. It might wound our pride a little bit because we think we're pretty cool. Um, But ultimately, it will strengthen our faith in the face of a great enemy. As Peter closes again, I think the theme of these last 10 or so verses is to know our place, to resist tunnel vision, to focusing only on our circumstances, our struggles, our needs, or whatever. Remember the wider story you're part of. Zoom out. So what are you struggling with right now? What is challenging to you? Try to zoom out from it. Consider God's sovereignty, his foreknowledge, his providence. Consider his promise. Consider Christ, his death and resurrection, the sending of the Spirit. Consider when you were born again. You were made to be born again. Consider the future. What future is certain for you? I can't predict what the next year or five years or 10 years are gonna be like, but I can predict what a thousand years from now is gonna be like for you. I know it for sure. There is an inheritance kept in heaven for you. You will be restored by God himself. Cast your cares on him, for he cares for you. Remember your adversary, the devil. Be sober, be alert, like a lion is prowling around you. Resist Satan, firm in your faith, and remember your Christian brothers and sisters, the ones in your local church, right? The ones in the wider church, all who are struggling with you. And how detailed is your outlook on life? Some of us are very detailed on the basketball. Like we know everything about whatever circumstances and we have all the details, but we know very little about the wider playing field going on. And when you zoom out, you'll be very encouraged. Which of these pieces do you tend to forget about? How much space do you give to reflecting on these other characters in the story of your life, in the true story of the whole world? This is why we worship every week. This is why we make time for each other throughout the week to remember, to hold fast, to stay true to what we know. First Peter 5, 10 through 11, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are thankful for this gentle reminder from the Apostle Peter, who had seen so much. He had seen great suffering. Uh, He had seen great glory, healings, miracles, the conversion of 3,000 people on the day of Pentecost. Uh, But he'd also seen the martyrdom of Stephen, uh, the jailing of friends. He had heard stories about the suffering of 
this church and his word to them was to remember Satan, to remember your brothers and sisters, and to remember the future inheritance that is theirs in Christ. Father, I pray for us as we wrestle with how to live wisely uh, today, um, whether that's big cultural questions or just very specific questions in our personal lives, things that are happening to us individually. Would we zoom out? How would we remember the adversary that we have? Would we remember the family that we have in Christ, the promises that we have? Um, help us to act in faith. In Jesus' name, amen.